1: I love your
0: podcast, Sister Gold, is where it's at. What is up, it's a Gold fam. Happy Monday. Hope you all had an amazing weekend and are getting ready for a great week here. I am so excited for this episode today. Today, my guest is Jeff Romick. Jeff has spent his career learning the ins and outs of community as a journalist, political strategist, and nonprofit executive. Through each line of his resume, he's fought a daily battle against his own mind. He founded the nonprofit Suicide Survival Stories and wrote the book Don't Fucking Kill Yourself, which launched last week to remind us that the perfect social media profiles we browse through every day don't tell the whole story. In opening up about his own life, Jeff hopes that people who share similar struggles will see their own value, push through their dark moments, embrace resiliency, and stay alive. I'm so excited to release this episode today. I think This conversation is incredibly important and really has the chance to impact a lot of people, especially those that are tuning in that might be facing some dark moments in their own life. Jeff lost his father by suicide at the age of 18 and through his book, Don't Fucking Kill Yourself, a podcast that's launching soon and so much more, he hopes to really open up and have the important tough conversations around mental health, suicide, and so much more. So with that, I hope you enjoy this episode. If you like it, take a minute, share with a friend. With that, enjoy. Jeff Romig, thanks so much for coming on the Bits of Gold podcast today. Excited to have you on.
1: Happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me. You recently
0: came out with a book, Don't Fucking Kill Yourself.
1: Comes out on November 2nd, so tomorrow as we're recording.
0: Awesome. So coming out tomorrow. Yeah, I'm excited to share your story. And I know we were just discussing for a few minutes here before jumping into it, but excited to have a conversation about some really hard things and see where it goes. Yeah, absolutely. One thing just to kick it off, I'd love to jump into your story, but I'd love to learn a little more about what Don't Fucking Kill Yourself is all about and what ultimately led you to write the book.
1: Basically, my dad died by suicide when I was 18 in 1996. And About 10 years ago, somebody asked me, if I could only say one more thing to my dad, what would I say? And my answer was, don't fucking kill yourself. And it's an answer that isn't meant to be, in the title of the book, isn't meant to be edgy or glib or profane or anything like that. That's the seriousness of suicide. And that's what I would say to him. And that's what I would say to to other friends. And I also struggle with anxiety and depression and suicidal ideation. And so it's a mantra that I I use for myself. So back in June of 2020, a few months into quarantine, I decided that I wanted to tell my story and, and tell the story of growing up after my dad's suicide. And I had always been really haunted. As he was in the car with carbon monoxide all around him before he lost consciousness, what were the last things he was thinking about? And combine that with the theory that our lives flash before our eyes when we die. And I thought about, you know, what would I see? What, you know, what did he see? What what would I see? What are those stories from my life? And then as I wrote and built out the book, it really evolved to understanding that these stories I'm telling in my memoir are about the people, passions, and experiences that help me stay alive and in my darkest moments give me the perspective I need to push through. And it's not a self-help book, it's a memoir, but really trying to tell my story so that other people can connect with their stories. And if I talk about baseball, which I love with enough passion, then maybe somebody that's reading and struggling draws a parallel to, you know, something in their life that they love. And, you know, same with my people and my experiences. And for folks who struggle with suicidal ideation, it's all about building a a toolkit of tools that we can use in those dark moments to push through and stay alive. That's why I decided to write the book and just, you know, hope to change the conversation around the stigma of of talking about suicidal ideation. I think the mental health conversation has changed over the past two decades. I think people are still really hesitant to talk about suicidal ideation and that they think about suicide. And, you know, the more we keep those thoughts inside our head, the more they become poison. And so this is just my attempt, you know, not really to just make it about me and my story, but to kind of say let's talk more about suicidal ideation and and I'll go first and tell my story and then I'm also starting a podcast called suicide survival stories where other people can share their stories as well so
0: I totally hear what you're what you're trying to do and awesome to you know hear that you're trying to create a conversation through the launch of your memoir here I think about mental health a lot and you know I don't know if it's just that I'm getting older and I'm more aware of these things. But I do feel like relative to when my parents grew up and at least from stories that my parents shared with me of their generation compared to the younger millennial Gen Z generation, I'm always surprised when I talk to my own peers. I'm 28. I feel like I know so many people who are physically alive in their early 20s, mid-20s, late 20s, early 30s. Physically alive, but spiritually really struggling, mentally really struggling. And, you know, it might not be to the point of actual really thinking about suicide or things, things of that nature. But I guess I'm always surprised when I meet someone or even my own personal friends who are in their, like I said, their 20s, their 30s, and who I know are just like not, not so happy with the life they're living. And it always takes me back a little bit. And I'm always curious, I guess, why, where there seems to be, you know, so much unhappiness and, the world today, and I'm I'm really talking on like a micro level or more than a macro level, but I see it time and time again where there's people who are just really early on in in their life that I feel they're just like not satisfied with where they are, not happy with where they are right now. And I don't know, I'm always curious. One, I guess I'm curious to get your thoughts if that's something that you see or feel is pretty common today. I always tend to think like social media and the crazy innovative technology that we have today is like. In some ways, it makes makes the world simpler, but in many ways, it's like almost the the optionality and seeing the highlight reel of so many people's lives so fast on Instagram, Facebook, things like that. I think sometimes technology has really made our lives a lot more complicated.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think we we compare our insides to other people's outsides, and those things are apples to oranges. You know, they're not apples to apples, and whatever picture we're putting forth and whatever picture other people are putting forth through social media is only a version of ourselves, even when we're being vulnerable. And I think that a lot of people who do think about suicide, it's not that they don't wanna live, they just don't wanna live the way they feel like they're living. And it's it's that perception. And yeah, I, I agree. I think social media can fuel that. I think it's just a real double-edged sword. It, it has made our lives e- easier and, and allowed us to connect in, in ways that are good, but also you know ways that can be challenging. It brings in this certain malaise that I think is more widespread than it used to be.
0: This is just my own personal experience specifically with social media, but I'm a really happy person. It takes a lot for like the day to be a cloudy gray day in my eyes and that's been my experience really for like much of my life. I try to really view things through like the happiness lens and I've really tried to and continue to try to focus on making decisions and choices that will ultimately lead to the most happiness. And that might sound a little bit cliché, but I'm an entrepreneur, I'm in my own businesses and slowly little by little I've tried to make more and more choices doing the things that like truly make me happy and I'm talking like really granular so like I have a list called my daily vitamins where it's not it's not like an actual supplement but it's things that I want to do on a daily basis that I know make me happy walk my dog, spend some time with my wife, see a friend once a week, go to the gym, things that I know like make me feel good. But then specifically like there have been moments in my life where I'm scrolling on Instagram and I see someone don't even know them personally and uh, they're also in their own business and they're flaunting the nice car they have or the success they're having. And it makes me second guess, or it's made me second guess myself in the past where I start to say, why am I not achieving that? Or why am am I moving too slowly? Am I not doing good enough? I want to say that I'm pretty introspective myself and not necessarily like I think I'm always striving for for more to be better, etc. But I'm also pretty satisfied and I'm able to say like, I'm happy with with where I'm at, although I still want to do X, Y, Z and try to push myself forward. But there have been moments in my own life where I've been scrolling aimlessly and I had that experience where it's like it makes me feel and question, am I good enough? And things like that. That's where it's like, I gotta turn this thing off.
1: Yeah, no, I get that. I I've been sober for four years and AA teaches me a lot of good things and a lot of a lot of good tools. And one of the things that I love is that our serenity is in direct proportion to our expectations. And so I think that with some of these things you know, both in terms of what we tell ourselves as we are absorbing what other people are doing, but also as we set our own goals and expectations, we just have to be reasonable with ourselves and kind to ourselves and, and know what matters, what matters to us. And so like, you know, the book's a good example, like the goals that I said, had nothing to do with sales or bestseller lists or things like that. You know, it was, it was about, I'm going to write this thing. That was the first goal. I'm going to figure out how to get it published. That was the second one. And then the third one is, I'm just going to figure out how to get it out there to as many people as possible. And, and after doing the first two, I really feel like I'm playing with house money on the third one. So I think it's just putting ourselves in a mindset of what's going to keep us centered in those ideas of success. And I'm not saying it works every day because I definitely strive and push myself and, but i do think if we can set you know in the same way that I think your daily vitamins are like that's a great tool that's a great idea if we can set those things around ourselves that keep us centered and keep us in check then from a mental health standpoint i think we we will be able to not get too far down you know a negative mental health road because we have these different tools to kind of pull us back to the center
0: i think in many ways like and i don't mean to simplify it but like i'm saying like the technology and just the world we live in. I live in New York City where like it's all about the hustle and bustle. And but I think in many ways, like there are people I know who have had immense success or or have have had enough success to be like comfortable for the rest of their life, right? And they're still completely unhappy with the life they're living in. I sometimes think it's somewhat as simple as sitting down, writing on a pen and paper and saying, like, what will make me happy, writing the things down and trying to do those things on a daily basis. I'm excited to share your story today because I think Happiness is just such an important part of the equation. You know, life is life's so fragile. And after my mom died when I was 25 years old, so my dad died when I was 20 years old. And when he died, it really made me like aware that we're not here forever. And when my mom died, it was really like this tremendous reminder in my own life where it's not just that, you know, we're not here forever. I I say this all the time on the this show, but probably the biggest lesson that I gained as a result of losing my mom was the clarity around this lesson, which is we can't control how much time we have on this earth. The only thing we can control is how we spend the limited time that we're given. I think in that sense, it's like thinking very much in my own life when I'm when I'm saying this, but my own experiences where it's like, I'm not enjoying this so much anymore. So it's time to make change. And that's when like I've I have actually in the past like sat down with a pen and paper, like tried to map and continue to try to map my life towards happiness equation of doing the things that actually make me happy.
1: Yeah. And I think intentionality is a key component in that because I think that when we really find ourselves at our most unhappiest, it's because you know we've sort of let go of that intentionality and let life kind of live us and happen around us. And we're just kind of getting dragged through the chaos of life. Whereas by setting intentionality around what makes us happy, around what we can do on a daily basis or weekly basis or Having a bucket list like whatever works for you that creates intentionality I think that's where we can find connection and you know I think that is that link between isolation and connection is you know is intentionality and therefore it's critical to, to experiencing happiness
0: I want to jump into and discuss a little bit about your own story with your dad I want to just bring up one thing that I learned probably eight years ago, but I do think it's important to bring up just on the topic of suicide. I just want to pause to take a moment to say, you know, you said that your dad died by suicide. I think that's really important to share because I'm really involved in a nonprofit organization Experience Camps, which is a free one week camp for kids that have lost a loved one. The first time I went there, I was 20 years old and one of the things they brought up was that you're not supposed to say the person committed suicide. I never heard that before that point. I think this it's an important just on the topic of suicide it's important to bring that up because what at least I was taught, suicide, it is a mental health issue. It's a mental disorder. It's not that the person committed suicide. It's that the person was sick. I don't know if that's like something that you want to just talk about, but it is something that I was taught. And I know a lot of people aren't necessarily aware of that. And over the years, I've corrected people when they said, oh, that person committed suicide. I don't know if that's something you want to talk about before jumping into the story.
1: You know, it's something I try to, when I can, when people use the phrasing of committed, I think committed implies a crime, and therefore, like, we don't want to imply that it's a crime. Obviously, there are there are suicides that harm others that include a crime, for sure. But in, in general, if it's one person taking their own life, we definitely try to say died by suicide. Because again, the stigma around that person, I mean, so many people who die by suicide, their legacies become how they died and not what they did here before that. and so I think saying died by suicide instead of committing suicide is a way to not further stigmatize people who were obviously struggling.
0: Appreciate talking about that a little bit. I'd love to just talk a little bit about
1: your dad. So how old were you when your dad passed? So I had just turned 18. He died about three weeks after I turned 18, so he was 47. He was a lawyer, he was a bankruptcy attorney, and mental health was obviously a lot different in the 90s than that generation of men, especially more alpha males, which my dad was, didn't talk about things, didn't ask for help, didn't go to therapy, didn't get on meds. I mean, none of those things. So all of that suicidal ideation sort of built up in his mind and the ideas that he thought were logical, which were the way I can take care of my family financially is to end my life. Seemed logical, but it was because he was upside down in his head and those ideas never came out of his mouth until he put them on, put them in his suicide letters.
0: Did you know that your dad was
1: struggling like mentally or? Not at all. It was totally out of left field. What was that like for you? It was a massive blindside and just angry and disorienting. And But it's also one of those things now, 25 plus years later, that it's like one of those like fault line kind of moments in my life of trauma that now I can't obviously think of my life any differently. So. Then it was, it seemed unbelievable, but over time I came to peace with it and learned about my own mental health issues and, you know, was able to draw the parallels of the genetics of that. And, you know, it was about six years between when he died and when I was actually diagnosed with generalized anxiety and clinical depression. Even though I experienced those things well before he died, it was just a different time.
0: How do you navigate the days, the months, the immediate years, I guess, following your dad's death?
1: I left home pretty soon after I went to college. The sixth month anniversary of his death, I had moved from Columbia, South Carolina to Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And I started school at University of Alabama and just sort of jumped into college. And then that was all of the trauma of college and fun, of course. So everything was changing. Unlike my mom and my brother, my brother's four years younger than me. So he was about to start high school. You know, I didn't have to learn to navigate life in Columbia, in our house, at our church with our friends. Like I started a whole new life. That had been the plan. Like we had gone to visit Alabama for my college visit actually the weekend before he died. So I was running away, but I also wasn't running away because it was what you're supposed to do at that point in life. And then after my sophomore year, I transferred back home and finished up college at University of South Carolina and did that so I could write. I was a reporter, wanted to be a journalist and thought there would be more opportunities in Columbia's capital city. and, And I was able to get a job at the state newspaper in Columbia covering sports while I went to school until I graduated. And so it was sort of just the evolution of this is what you do after high school. And then it got to a point where I felt like coming back home would be a good thing. And so I came back to Columbia until I graduated. And then I sort of set off on my newspaper career at that point.
0: Just sort of like pushed forward, it sounds like.
1: I think I'm pretty resilient in general. And I think I just kind of found that resiliency at that point before I ever really had understood the concept of resiliency. Just sort of tried to do what was in front of me, do my best and figure things out as as I went. And obviously, in those first six years, it was without a diagnosis and without medicine. And... And then later, I was able to add those things to sort of start to get healthier and then added a therapist in 2007 that I still go to and just sort of a a progression of kind of living life, finding new tools, using those new tools to get healthier. And that's kind of been my evolution of doing the best I can with what I have and what I know and trying to be a better version of myself and being open to feedback about what I'm doing right, what I'm doing wrong, and just trying to do better.
0: Would you say that your own mental health struggle came as a result of your dad's loss
1: or... No, um, I definitely had the elements of my mental health struggles with anxiety and depression. I can look back to middle school to high school before my dad died and see places where the ways that I experienced those diseases affected my life and affected choices that I made. And I think obviously... The suicide of a parent exacerbated those things. And, and the trauma of that is its own set of things. But, you know, I think kind of the, the diseases that we have that are part of our chemical makeup and the traumas we experience while connected are also disconnected. So I, I look at those things as separate but interrelated things.
0: I understand, like, you struggled with your own mental health. I guess, did you ever have your own suicidal ideations
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that's a big thing for me for really until I was in the midst of writing this book. I had been pretty open publicly on social media, things like that, about just navigating mental health and anxiety and depression. But I never really said out loud, I think about suicide, or until I really started writing this book and started seeing that, like, we need to have a more open conversation about suicidal ideation. And if I'm going to do that, then I need to be honest about my own brain. And in 2017, I came very close to attempting and was able to push through and got sober instead. But yeah, I mean, I think about suicide. There are different versions of that for me and different versions of that for other people. It can be passing thoughts. It can be just thoughts of hopelessness. It can be sort of thoughts of ways, whether it's different methods. There's only been a couple of times where I felt like I was in danger personally. And they were sort of very acute moments that I was able to ultimately push through without an official suicide attempt.
0: How did you push through? Like you know, I'm curious if someone tunes into this and they have their own personal struggles, how did you push through and what advice would you give to someone who is navigating some tough times and maybe had had their own thought of suicide or not necessarily acting on it but maybe even just the thought around it.
1: Yeah, I mean for me it was disconnecting from what was happening at the moment and trying to connect to things that brought me joy. It's hard to put myself back in that mindset from four years ago. But I think the answer then would have been perspective and knowing that I wanted to get help and asking for it. I mean, I think that was a little messier then, but I think looking at it in terms of like putting words to it, but I think over time and the big idea of of my book is, we can connect with the people, passions, and experiences from our lives that bring us joy, we can get the perspective or at least enough perspective when we're in those darkest moments to kind of pull through. And I think it's a combination of if we've done something that we feel guilty about or shameful about, the only way that we can do better is to stay alive. And if we think about things from our life that have brought us joy in the past can remind us that those things are possible again, despite how we may be feeling at that moment. And so for me, I think the thing that has always helped the most is like getting that perspective and getting my brain out of the sort of, I'm worthless. It's better for everybody if I'm not here anymore. And into the, here are times when I didn't feel worthless. I felt happiness. I felt joy. And reconnecting, even if briefly, with those memories and and thinking about the people, especially because the people are who you would leave behind and that's one of the things that works for me, but I really definitely believe that they're different. Everybody has different blood chemistry, and their minds are different, and so that's why I think it's about you know how do we collect a handful of different tools because we never know what, what we might need in that dark moment. My goal is to share the tools that help for me, and also in these conversations find tools that help for others that can you know add to my toolbox because whether it's medicine or ideas, tools can stop working. And so the more we can engage and connect and hear what works for other people, the, the more we have multiple things at our disposal when we're just trying to stay alive.
0: Great advice. I mean, I always think, you know, the, the happiness is just such a big equation. And I've told this to friends before, but like, I think, and I don't know if you've ever been told this, but I think like a lot of people, I don't know if it's just like that people are told this or if it's more just like ingrained in us, but I've seen it firsthand and I've lived it myself where like a lot of young people who have a lot of ambition out of college or like early on in their professional career I'm sure you've heard this where people are like if I achieve X then I'll be happy or when I do X then I'll be happy and I think like the the delaying of happiness is just like such a a toxic way of living because that belief is just such a fallacy in my mind because there's so many issues when people are like one day, when I do X, then one day I'll be happy. Because it's like, one, you don't know. Once you achieve X, you don't know what you might feel. You might say, then I need to achieve Y to ultimately be happy. Or you might be chasing this thing, never, ever get there. And then all your happiness is tied to the end result. And I really think and like, really deeply believe that that's why it's so important to be happy with the here, the now. I know I mentioned it before, but this has just been one like you're saying, one tool that's worked really well for me, where I have my non-negotiables, where, like I said, you know, I wrote down on a piece of paper, my daily vitamins, and I put it on my wall. And those are the daily things. And I have the weekly vitamins and the monthly vitamins, where it's like, I need to do these things on a daily, a weekly, a monthly basis. And I need to optimize my life around those things and put those things first before maybe the work calls or things like that. Otherwise, like you said, it's so easy to ultimately just Go on about living your life and have life start to pull you in a million directions. And all of a sudden you wake up, you live your life, and you go to sleep, you do it all over again. And you didn't make that pocket of time to do the things you really wanted to do. I remember talking to a friend like months ago where he loved outdoors. He's like, Oh, I don't have any time to go outdoors. I'm so busy with work. And I told him, like, you know, you love the outdoors. Why don't you just block off like nine to twelve every Tuesday or every other Tuesday? Where twice a week you're gonna really look forward to spending that time outside and you can work twelve thirty till eight thirty that night, or you know you could catch up on the other days and I just think like making sure that you make time for yourself is not necessarily the end all solution but certainly like a hack to at least optimize your life for for happiness
1: yeah, absolutely, and I think it it may seem trite, but I do think it is about the journey, not always the destination, and you know the more that we can understand our our journeys, the more that we can take the happiness from those moments along the way. And it's not just about tomorrow is technically on paper a big day, right? Because I'm publishing a book, but it's really, I look back at the past 18 months of how my life and my perspective have evolved as I, you know, from the moment that I started really digging in on this project. And then I also know that just because it's published tomorrow, like it's a it's a longer journey than tomorrow. You know, tomorrow is just a milestone in this journey. And I do think that it comes back to the intentionality and being present around these little moments along the way and recognize them and recognizing the people in our lives and not necessarily have it be some big chase for, for some material thing. Really kind of what happens along the way as we're getting to wherever it is that we want to go.
0: I even journaled this this morning where I wrote, the life you live is ultimately a result of the choices you make, regardless of circumstance, because you know, I think my own experience I lost both my parents young, and I can now say, as a result of losing them, I'm going to live my life through a negative lens or I'm going to live inside and not see the beauty in any of life. There's a lot of things that you can cling to and make an excuse around it. you know another one that I heard this one probably like upsets me one of the most, but I personally, and I don't know where this, where this sits with you or if this resonates at all, but I really believe deep down that, like I said, life is so fragile. We can't control how much time we have on this earth. The only thing we can control is how and where we spend that limited time we're given. And I think knowing that, it's easier said than done. I think a lot of people make professional choices around what will give them the most money, regardless if they like it or not. People justify that. Oh, a job is supposed to pay the bills and provide for your family. I always say, you know, I'd rather see someone or personally myself, I'd rather make a little bit less money doing the thing that really makes me happy and still be able to provide for my family. And I think it's funny because I've spoken to like family members before or close friends. They've told me, I don't love what I do every day, but I've made this choice to be able to provide my family a certain lifestyle or things like that. And um, I've always thought there's some irony in that because it's like, And I understand maybe they're not putting themselves first. They're putting their family first. That's cool and all. But sometimes you can still put yourself first. I really believe you can still put yourself first, still provide for your family, and still live like an absolutely incredible, amazing life, as opposed to just being focused on like, I don't know, whether it just be like money or I think so much unhappiness and. I don't know in conversations around suicide if you found this, but like I think there's so much unhappiness stem from I don't like what I do or like a living, and it's like the job is an important thing. It's where you're at nine to five. It's the majority of your day, and I really think it's it's just such a miss if what you're doing on that nine to five Monday to Friday is something that I don't even want to say. It's like I hate when people are like, God, ah, it's good enough," you know. Like I think what you do nine to five needs to be. A fuck yes. You know, and I think if you're not there, you need to continue to search for that because I don't know, you know, you spend a lot of time at work. So you want to do something that makes you happy, energized, etc.
1: I agree with you, and that's how I'm built. I'm very mission driven. And if I'm not doing something that I believe in and is fulfilling, then you know, I am missing a big piece of what I need. But I think there's some people that are just built like it's a job and this is what I do and it's fine. And I do other things in outside of my profession that are fulfilling. So I agree with you. Your approach is my approach too. I can't really I've never had a job where it's been like, Oh, I just do this because it pays the bills. But I hear that.
0: Sometimes I think it's also living in like a big city like New York. I, I know we spoke about it before the show, but like so chaotic here and in a lot of major cities there's so much hustle where it's like people get so hung up on all the things that don't really matter in life where In many ways, life feels a lot more complicated than we're just living in more complicated times. Life used to be a lot simpler several decades ago. Why do you think suicide or suicidal thoughts are and mental health is so prevalent today?
1: I mean, I think especially coming out of quarantine, I think we don't really know how the pandemic is going to affect us all long term. So I think that is something that is immediately present. But I also think that, and this is one of those positive parts about how we communicate in social media, I think that there's an ability now to insert yourself into a conversation. And if you think something needs to be talked about, you can start talking about it. Growing up in the 90s, like that wasn't the case. I think that's a big, big difference is that we have the ability with our phones now to create all types of media and tell all types of stories without needing somebody's funding or permission or whatever. So I think that that's where conversations can change for the better and the worse. You know, obviously there's lots of misinformation about out there and not just about suicide, but in general about anything, whether it's politics or vaccines or whatever. And those things can kind of catch fire because of these channels. But I do think that one of the positives of the ability to kind of be autonomous in how you tell your story or stories or, you know, what conversation you want to lead I think that has helped change it a lot. And I think, you know, more people who go to therapy, who take meds, who want this stigma to change around mental health have stepped up and talked about it more. And, you know, hopefully we could do the same thing with suicidal ideation.
0: I cannot imagine being a a teenager growing up in today's society with social media, cyberbullying. as someone that's more evolved as a 20 year old versus like a 14 year old. You know, I shared before, like the own moments of pressure I felt from comparing myself to other business people or entrepreneurs who I don't even know. I don't know their story. I don't know what it looks like when they're not posting that highlight reel. I personally felt that way. And I can only imagine what a 12, 13, 14, 15 year old kid is feeling. I'm sure a much more micro level and magnified probably 10X, 100X to that.
1: As a kid in the 90s, like, You certainly had these same elements, right? But they didn't come home with you. It wasn't nonstop on your phone with bullying and sort of those dynamics that are present with all all teenagers. You know, now it's just nonstop and there's no way to get away from it, which again, I'm like you, I can't fathom having to deal with it. What
0: resources can you recommend to our listeners who struggle with mental health, suicidal ideation, What's been helpful to you and what resources should they be aware about?
1: We have a few on our website. So in conjunction with the book, I started a nonprofit called Suicide Survival Stories. And that website is www.suicidesurvivalstories.org. And we have a resource page right on the homepage that includes some of my favorite mental health and suicide related resources, including the Crisis Text Line, which is great. The Giving Kitchen here in Atlanta does... Training program that's free for any restaurant worker that's a suicide training suicide prevention training program, so you can kind of spot the signs in the people around you and then the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention does a ton of great work, both here in Atlanta and across the country. so those are three I would recommend, but there's a list on our website on that front page that people can check out if they if they want to delve into it.
0: We can start to wrap up the show. One question I like to ask all my guests. know, the Bits of Gold podcast is all about navigating tough times, moving forward, waking up, building your dream life. So with that, what would be your Bits of Gold on how to build a life you love?
1: Like I said earlier, I think it's that intentionality. I think that if we can be present and lay out the things that we need to do, like you said, daily, weekly, monthly, to be happy, and then find the wherewithal on a daily basis to just make sure we prioritize those things, I think the other things will fall in place. And I think, it is about the journey and, you know, being present in that journey as we set those bigger goals, just knowing that when we look back, we're going to remember things along the way that helped us achieve those goals, not just the, the goal itself. Because typically as humans, but I think also as Americans, as soon as we achieve a goal, we are very quickly on to the next thing. <laughs> and, and that goal is kind of in the dust. So I think we have to, just that intentionality, that working to be present. I think can help slow us down, keep us centered, and you know I think that's where we find our happiness is when we are more in control of our life day to day rather than letting it control us. I know
0: you mentioned your site before, but where can people get a hold of you, follow you, buy the book?
1: Yeah, so if you go to www.suicidesurvivalstories.org, you can buy the book through there. The Amazon link pops up. Um, our social is there, so you can follow the nonprofit at Share S H A R E with SSS. And that's on Instagram and Twitter. And then you can follow the book at Book on Instagram and Twitter. And then, yeah, it's available on Amazon starting November 2nd. And if you just search Don't Fucking Kill Yourself on Amazon, it'll take you right there.
0: Thanks so much for coming on the show today.
1: Thank you so much for having, having me, Dan. This was great. Great conversation. I appreciate what you're doing.
0: thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of the bits of gold podcast if you like this episode please take a minute share with a friend subscribe leave a review it really helps with growing the show and with that have an amazing week I love your podcast of gold is it's at.